Good morning, Grace Point. It is so good to see you today, um, especially if you're joining us for the first time. Whenever you're watching this, wherever in the world you're watching this, we're just thrilled you're here. We're in a series called Bible Studies for Grownups. And sort of the point of this series is to go back to some of these stories that many of us heard growing up and, and to approach them with more grown-up eyes and grown-up ears and with some grown-up um, post-critical lenses that we can maybe dig into these stories and find that there's something going on here that we missed originally. And today we're going to continue by looking at the story of Ruth. But before we jump into the actual story, I thought it might be, uh, I might just share a couple of fun facts about, uh, Bible nerd fun facts about the book of Ruth, just in case you ever find yourself in the middle of some sort of impromptu um, Bible trivia battle, um, those things I hear can break out from time to time. So uh, a couple of things. First, in the Christian Bible, uh, the book of Ruth appears after Judges and before 1 Samuel. So right in between Judges and 1 Samuel. Often the way that, that gets memorized is Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Um, however, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth appears in a section known as the Ketuvim, which is a word that means writing. So it's in part of the Bible with Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs. Actually, Ruth is part of a collection called the Five Scrolls, which includes Ruth, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and Esther. Now, these were likely grouped together because, first, they could all be copied onto one scroll because they're kind of short. And then, second, because they're all used for some sort of liturgy uh, for a specific reason. For example, the book of Ruth is traditionally read during the Feast of Shavuot, which is also known as the Feast of Weeks, which is known in Greek and in the New Testament as the Feast of Pentecost. So that's when Ruth would be read. Um, one, one final thing before we dig into the actual story um, one of the strange to us details that show up, shows up in this story is this idea of a leveret marriage. And I, I don't know that you've ever heard that phrase before, but essentially it's a practice that is grounded in a passage in Deuteronomy. I want to read it for you real quick. Deuteronomy 25. If brothers live together and one of them dies without having a son, now this is a patriarchal society, so prepare yourself for what we're about to hear. If brothers live together and one of them dies without having a son, the dead man's wife must not go outside the family and marry a stranger. Instead, her brother-in-law should go to her and take her as his wife. He will then consummate the marriage according to the brother-in-law's duty. The brother-in-law will name the oldest male son that she bears after his dead brother so that his brother's legacy will not be forgotten in Israel. If the brother does not want to marry his sister-in-law, she can go to the elders at the city gate informing them. My brother-in-law refuses to continue his brother's legacy in Israel. He's not willing to perform his brother-in-law's duty with me. The city elders will summon him and talk to him about this. If he doesn't budge, insisting, I don't want to marry her, then the sister-in-law will approach him while the elders watch. Wait for it. She will pull the sandal off his foot and spit in his face. Then she will exclaim, this is what's done to any man who won't build up his brother's family. Subsequently, that man's family will be known throughout Israel as the house of the removed sandal. I mean, interesting, right? I don't know uh, how many of you have ever heard that particular uh, text read before, but it's essentially levirate marriage. It's about preserving the lineage and the legacy of the deceased brother. And this is going to, the reason I bring this up is not just random fun fact. This is actually has a significant role in the book of Ruth and specifically in her relationship with a man named Boaz, which we'll get to 
in a bit. But before we get there, let's start at the beginning of the story. Ruth 1.1. During the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man with his wife and two sons went from Bethlehem of Judah to dwell in the territory of Moab. The name of that man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the territory of Moab and settled there. So this story begins during the days when the judges ruled. That beginning has a certain feel to it. Those words have a certain feel. Perhaps like a story that begins once upon a time, or maybe even a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Right? Those are familiar to us. It's almost like we're being told that what we're about to hear is going to serve a parabolic function. It's going gonna, it's gonna to function in the way a parable would. It's going to try to speak a truth that will challenge conventional cultural wisdom. And often we can only hear those things, those difficult things, those challenging things. We can only often hear them in a parable. It's, it's like what happens when your kids won't take their medicine and so you, you like put it in a pudding cup or in a sippy cup or something. You do a thing to get the medicine in them because they're going to be resistant because it doesn't taste great, right? So they're, they're going to resist it. Often in the Bible, when we're going to learn something that's going to be hard to swallow, it's going to be difficult, it's going to be challenging, we often hear that in the form of a parable. So this story begins with a famine. And with a family of Ephrathites, which just means they're from Bethlehem, well, what's interesting is the word Ephrathite, it means fruitful. And they're from Bethlehem, and Bethlehem in Hebrew means house of bread. So the fruitful people from the house of bread are living through a famine, right? There's this, these names are almost, adva- especially if you were one of the original people, audience to hear this, the, the names are advancing the themes. In the house of bread and the fruitful people, there's a famine. And they're forced to leave Judah, which is part of, uh, at this point, part of Israel. They're, they're forced to leave their home territory to go to Moab. This means they're leaving the promised land, land that was promised to flow with milk and honey. They're leaving the promised land and they're settling in a non-Jewish territory, a Gentile territory. And while they're there, the father, Elimelech, dies. And so Naomi is left there with her two sons, Malon and Chilion. Malon actually means sickness. Chilion means wasting, right? So their names are foreshadowing what's going to happen. They end up marrying two Moabite women. One, One is named Orpah, not Oprah, although I say that half the time when I'm talking about the book of Ruth. And the other one is Ruth. And they live there for about a decade. And then Malan and Chilion die. So if you're keeping score at home, Naomi has lost her husband and both of her sons. And it leaves Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws alone. And in a patriarchal society, and as it was in the ancient world, that, that means that these women are extremely, extremely vulnerable in every possible way. So Naomi decides to return home to Bethlehem, to return home to her people where she'll be safer. And she tells Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah and Ruth to return to their father's households. Orpah reluctantly agreed, but Ruth refused. Ruth insisted that she continue on with Naomi. And her response to Naomi is so lovely and so beautiful that it actually gets used at weddings, even though it's between a mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law. 
is used at weddings to speak to us of the kind of commitment. Listen to Ruth, what she says to Naomi. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to abandon you or turn back from you, from following after you. Wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do this to me and more so if even death separates me from you. That's sort of a, a line in the Hebrew Bible, essentially saying, if, if I don't fulfill my obligation to this, may, may God get me, right? But Ruth's response to Naomi's encouragement to leave is, no, I'm going to go with you. And I'm going to, your God is my God. Your people are my people. Where you die, I'll die. Where you're buried, I'll be buried. It's this beautiful commitment that's being expressed. And so when they arrive back in Bethlehem, Naomi actually tells the people she changes her name from Naomi to Mara because Mara in Hebrew means bitter. She has experienced so much loss and so much grief. Who wouldn't be bitter if you're Naomi, now Mara? And so they, they begin to try to figure out, Ruth and Naomi, what's next for us? And so Ruth begins to go to the field of a man named Boaz. Boaz is a relative of her deceased father-in-law. And she goes to glean the leftovers. So in the Hebrew law there in the Torah, uh, there's this command about harvesting your field. And it reads like this, Leviticus 23. When you harvest your land's produce, you must not harvest all the way to the edge of your field. And don't gather every, every remaining bit of your harvest. Leave these items for the poor and the immigrant I am the Lord your God. So essentially, the, the law, the command is, you, you don't go into your field and take everything as harvest. You leave the edges. You, you don't take it all. Because there are people among you, the poor, the immigrant, immigrant, the refugee. There are people among you who are suffering. And it is your calling to help provide for them. The law calls for compassion and generosity toward the poor and the immigrant. How progressive, right? And it's actually not, it shouldn't be progressive. It is just a basic human way to be in relationship with the people around you because we're all connected. We are all in some way connected to one another. And when I'm doing well, you're doing better. And when you're doing better, I'm doing better. There's something about sort of our shared existence. We've talked about this before, that in societies where there's a growing gap between the rich and the poor, that the rich are, are sicker and the poor are sicker. But in societies where that gap is narrow, everybody has a better sense of well-being. So eventually, Naomi and Ruth devise this plan. They're going to ask Boaz, as a relative of um, her, Naomi's deceased husband, Ruth's deceased father-in-law, and her deceased husband, they're going to ask him to fulfill his leveret marriage responsibility by marrying Ruth and producing offspring. And there's this back and forth. There's actually somebody closer relative who has to pass first, and they do the whole city gate thing that we talked, that we read about earlier. Uh, and essentially, eventually, spoiler alert, it happens. Boaz and Ruth marry. And, and, and by the way, when they go to, when she goes to ask Boaz to do this, she actually, it's, she, it happens while he's drunk, and there's the seductive component of it. And it's really like, like Ruth is, she's, she's going into this situation with eyes wide open, knowing that she's trying to end up in a better situation for her and her mother-in-law. And Boaz and Ruth get married and they produce offspring. And this story ends happily ever after. One of the rare stories anywhere, even in the Bible, that end happily ever after. And here's how the story wraps up. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. 
He was intimate with her. The Lord let her become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, May the Lord be blessed, who today hasn't left you without a redeemer. That was also uh, the, the term in Hebrew is goel, and it means kinsman redeemer, right? We, in Latin, it's leveret marriage. In Hebrew, it's kinsman redeemer. May his name be proclaimed in Israel. He will restore your life and sustain you in your old age. Your daughter-in-law who loves you has given birth to him. She's better for you than seven sons. Naomi took the child and held him against her breast, and she became his guardian. The neighborhood women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They called his name Obed. He became Jesse's father and David's grandfather. When the story ends, Naomi is no longer Mara. She's no longer bitter. She is celebrating the birth of a grandson who she devotes herself to caring for. The story wraps up by telling us that Ruth and Boaz's son, Obed, would become the father of a man named Jesse, who would become the father of David, who was the greatest king Israel would know, at least in their uh, understanding of it. So what's this story really about? There, there are several things to note. Um, one is that in this story, women have agency. And it's so, in the ancient world, in patriarchal society, it was very rare for women to have agency. But in this story, the women don't just respond to what the men are doing. They actually take the initiative. When Boaz doesn't act to fulfill his obligation to his deceased relative, Ruth and Naomi take action they go to the threshing floor where he's drunk and Ruth essentially says, hey, you need to like redeem me, marry me. It's time for this. Uh, it's time for you to act on this. So they, they have this agency. Also, Ruth embodies faithful love and it's the Hebrew word hesed. And hesed in Hebrew, it means faithful love, but it's most often used of God in response to people. So you may have heard these, this, a psalm that says this, give thanks to the Lord for she is good, her love her hesed, her faithful love endures forever, right? It's this, this committed, consistent, never waning, never failing love. And in this story, Ruth, the woman from Moab, the Moabite woman, embodies this kind of love. She refuses to abandon Naomi and instead returns to Bethlehem with her and works to secure their position and to bring joy back to Naomi's life. And ultimately, she shapes the entire future of the Jewish tradition by becoming the great-grandmother of King David. Which brings me to the main purpose I think this story was written. The main purpose of this story is actually to speak to the context in which it was written. Now, the narrative context, and what I mean by that is what the story, when the story says it's taking place, is in the days of the judges, sometime around 1150 to 1025 BCE. But the date Ruth was composed was actually more likely during the post-exilic period. The period, if you're familiar with um, the names Ezra and Nehemiah, meaning in the 500s to 400s. So the judges were in 1150 to 1025, and, and this was actually composed sometime in the 5 or 400s. And to give you some context, the Jews had been exiled by Babylon in the year 587 BCE. But when the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Emperor Cyrus allowed, had a policy. He allowed the Jewish people to return to their land and to rebuild their temple. And during this period of time, when they were returning to the land, there became this emphasis on keeping the tradition pure, creating boundaries that would protect them from being absorbed by or diluted by the surrounding Gentile cultures. One of the resulting laws that they produced out of this was that concerning marriages between Jewish men and non-Jewish women and the children that resulted from these unions. Listen to Ezra chapter 10. 
Then Shechaniah, Jehilson, you know Jehilson, uh, from the family of Elam spoke up and said to Ezra, we've been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the neighboring peoples. But even now there's hope for Israel in spite of this. Let's now make a covenant with our God to send away all these wives and their children. Ezra 10, Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have been unfaithful by marrying foreign women and adding to Israel's guilt, but now make a confession to the Lord, the God of your ancestors and do his will. Separate yourselves from these neighboring peoples and from the foreign wives. Nehemiah 13, on that day, when the scroll of Moses was being read to the people, they found written in it, listen to this part, no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter God's assembly. This is because they hadn't met the Israelites with food and water, but instead hired Balaam against them to curse them, which is another fascinating story. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they separated out from Israel all those of mixed descent. Do you see what's happening in the Ezra Nehemiah period? They're they're starting to say, no, 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 we need to make sure we're a pure people. We need to make sure we're not being deluded, or we need to make sure that our our DNA, we need to make sure that we are separate and distinct from all of those other people. So if you're married to a foreign woman, if you're married to a foreign wife, she's not Jewish, she's not one of us, and you have produced children that are not fully Jewish, not one of us, send them away. And there's even this line, no Moabite should ever enter the Lord's assembly. In an effort to purify their community, they want to expel all people of foreign descent. When, when Often we're seeking explanations for why something bad happened, i.e., why did we get sent into exile? What was the lesson there? Maybe we got sent into exile because we weren't pure enough. We didn't obey the laws enough. We weren't you know, holy and separate enough. And so God allowed us to be sent into exile. And as a result of that, now we're back and we don't want to make the same mistakes twice. I mean, you can see the logic there, right? Like we, we, we don't know why we, it can't just be that the Babylonians beat us. It had, there has to be a divine lesson in it. And in this, how we sort of function is we, we want everything to sort of have a divine purpose to it. And so anything that happens, God has to be teaching us a message or a lesson, All right? It can't just be that, hey, we live in this world and sometimes things happen. It needs to have a lesson. So if something bad happens to you, maybe I was unfaithful to God. And as a result, maybe I need to be more faithful. In this context, that being more faithful is we need to be more religiously pure. When we are seeking explanations for why something bad happened, we often look for someone or someone's to blame. And in this context, it was the non-Jewish women and children that resulted from marriages between Jewish men and non-Jewish women. Richard Rohr says this, scapegoating, exporting our unresolved hurt is the most common storyline of human history. Hear that again, scapegoating. Exporting our unresolved hurt is the most common storyline in human history. This story takes place in the context of a purity movement that is seeking to split up families and send them. And by the way, if you split these families and you send these women and children away, they're very vulnerable. Right? This is a patriarchal society. You are essentially dooming them in so many ways, either to humiliation or far, far worse things. And in this context, not in a vacuum, in this context, someone wrote down the story of Ruth. What challenge would this particular story pose? What, what kind of parabolic 
statement or challenge might it pose during the Ezra Nehemiah period when they're sending away foreign women, especially Moabites? Ruth is the story of a Moabite woman who saves the day for her Jewish mother-in-law and becomes the great-grandmother of the, in their mind, their greatest Jewish king, David. I mean, hearing this story, what an unbelievable shock. The greatest and most idealized king was a descendant of a Moabite woman. What would have happened if Boaz had not married Ruth? Or what would have happened if Boaz had married Ruth and said, I shouldn't be married to a Moabite. It says so in the Bible. I've got to send her and this child away. What would have happened? There would have been no King David. There would have been no united kingdom. It was essentially everything was on the line. Ruth. The Moabite, the one who the text said should have been excluded, was the one who produced the lineage of the greatest Jewish leader in their history. The book of Ruth is a response to xenophobia. And xenophobia is the product of fear mongering and scapegoating. Maybe we need the story of Ruth now more than we ever have in our lifetimes. We are living through an intensely difficult and divided period in our history. There are those in the highest offices in our land who want to appeal to our worst sentiments, who want to stoke our fear, who want to inflame hate, who want to uh, excuse racism, who want to create a new sense of classism, and the list goes on and on. And Ruth reminds us that God works in surprising ways And it's often in those we have tried to marginalize and exclude that God is to be most found and most experienced. God shows up in the face of Esau, not in the face of Jacob, right? God shows up in this story in a Moabite who was not supposed to be allowed in the Lord's assembly, who wasn't supposed to be brought into the people of God. And yet she enters the story and not only does she save the day, she is the great grandmother of the greatest king. Perhaps the challenge, the the point of this story is that God works through all sorts of different people. That where you were born or who your family is ultimately doesn't decide who you are or who you get to become. That God doesn't play favorites. And it's often the group of people we fear the most that might one day be the very people who save us. I I love this from John Shelby Spong. We'll end with this. In his book, um, uh, I think it's Rescuing the Bible from, no, Rescuing the Bible from Feminism or, oh, the Bible, Reclaiming the Bible for a Non-Religious World. That's the book. He says this, that is the point of the protest. He calls Ruth a protest book. That is the point of the protest book of Ruth. It was designed to confront the raging xenophobia that was sweeping the land and to reveal its inherent weakness. As the fear subsided, the xenophobia also faded. It always does. The call of God to human beings is always a call to wholeness. No one is whole when acting out of fear. If I could just like underline that, highlight that, tattoo that, no one is whole when acting out of fear. Fear causes people to diminish the worth and dignity of another when the other is judged to somehow to be somehow impure or inferior by reason of one's very being over which there is no human control. That is for reasons of race, ethnicity, gender, left-handedness, or sexual orientation, many of which are regularly reinforced by human religious codes. 
The book of Ruth was written to protest all the limits that human prejudice forever tries to place on the love of God. I want to read that line again. The book of Ruth was written to protest all of the limits that human prejudice forever tries to place on the love of God. How wonderful that such a book was included in the sacred scriptures, read and valued by both Jews and Christians. The book of Ruth provides us with a biblical mirror into which we can stare at our own prejudices and then be led to free ourselves from them. I think that's the thing we don't want to do. We do not want to stare into the mirror of our own prejudices. That's why when we make the statement, if you exist and if you if you're a white person in America, you have benefited, you have white privilege. So why people want to immediately respond defensively. Because we don't want to stare into how our own prejudices or how our just where we were born in the color of our skin and all that stuff is factored into giving us a leg up in the world. It's why when we are confronted with our need to repent over attitudes toward other people, over the ways we have marginalized and excluded, over the ways that, that by nature of just our privilege, we have, we have negatively impacted the people around us. It's why we want to resist that. So, so, I mean, it's, it's not even something we have to muster. It's an, at least for me, it comes as a natural sort of response, a defensiveness. And what Ruth is inviting us to do is to stare into that mirror where we can see our own prejudices and then be led to free ourselves of them because the Moabite who was supposed to be excluded becomes King David's great-grandmother. So my hope is that these words of John Shelby Spong, which are reflective of the story of Ruth, may we hear these words. May we hear them. That God will always be found in the marginalized and oppressed. That God will always be found in those who are being cast aside as the least. That God will always be found in, not in the strength of the proud and the powerful, but in the weakness of the marginalized and forgotten. May we hear those words. And may we seek to embody this alternative way. May we seek in any opportunity we have to combat xenophobia with love to combat fear with love. To not only dream about, to begin, but to begin to articulate a vision for a better world and then to join hands together as we seek to bring that better world into existence. This story of Ruth, it, yeah, in some ways it's antiquated, leveret, marriage and all, yeah, 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 yeah. But what the story of Ruth is trying to speak to, what the parable of Ruth is trying to challenge is a very, very unfortunately real reality in our world and in our country today. And may we be the kinds of people who use our voice, our platform, whatever privilege we have, may we use all of that to combat this xenophobia in such a way that not just excludes another group of people, but that invites them to see and be transformed and to experience a new kind of life. Because that's what the Book of Ruth, I think, is ultimately calling us to.